we've spent years now with this idea of how do you reflect a protocol digitally within a platform. I've been able to watch that grow. And as I've seen that, and as I've watched what we've been able to do with our early sites, I've always been confident that in the end of the day, we had to be patient and we had to build this sort of comprehensive platform that that sites would love it. And then once we get that infrastructure and sites that we're now getting, there really is, with the power of that digitization process, the opportunity to sort of reimagine things much more broadly. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. If Alex P. Keaton was from Texas, went on to medical school, and then trained in oncology, he might have emerged looking something like our guest today, Dr. Brad Hirsch, an MD, MBA, with a doctor's heart and a businessman's head, who's now busy integrating both of these qualities as CEO of SignalPath, a company trying to improve the execution of clinical trials. This is Tectonics. I'm Lisa Soonan. And I'm David Shaywitz. And today's episode is brought to you by yet another new sponsor who we're huge fans of, RockPoint. RockPoint, innovators in medical education and patient engagement. To learn more, go to www.rockpointe.com. Remember the last E for excellence. And if you see Tom Sullivan, tell him Tectonics said thanks and to keep fighting the good fight. So, Lisa, two things. Yes, David. First, I just wanted to point out that today we actually have a physician guest who never trained in either Massachusetts or California. So I think we're scoring some mighty big diversity points. Wow. And we also recently talked to Marcus Osborne, who came from Kentucky. So we're doing the flyover states now. Wow. I, um, <laughs> usually I fly a little north of that, but okay. Um, and then also, unlike both of us, um, he does have an MBA, like many of our guests, uh, including several of the MDs, like Bijan, or however you tell me to pronounce his name. That was close. Close. All right. Uh, looking back, Lisa, any regrets on not pursuing an MBA, which I've heard described as six months of education crammed into two years? Um, not really. It's worked out okay for me. And as you know, I now teach in the MBA program at Berkeley. Those you can't, yeah. <laughs> so I've, it's kind of my, my karma. But um, it's funny to me. I think... While there are certainly things that I probably could have learned more um, tactically, I feel like I got the on-the-job experience that made up for it. So I regret nothing. I regret nothing. All right. <laughs> All right. So with that, welcome to the show, Brad. We are so glad you can join us today. Thank you both. Thrilled to be here. Great. Um, I thought we might start with what you're doing now and then uh, backfill a bit. Um, uh, so um, right now you're the CEO of SignalPath. Could you tell us what SignalPath is and the problem it's trying to solve? Absolutely. No, I'm, I'm excited to tell you all about it. And thanks for allowing me on, for me to be on the show today. So our goal at SignalPath is really to reimagine the execution of trials. I know you've heard about this in a lot of different ways, but we think we're a bit different in that unlike others that are really attempting to, to cut the clinic out of the mix, SignalPath is really around making clinics uh, exponentially more efficient in the conduct of trials by moving away from the pen and paper, the PDFs, uh, sticky notes, Excel files that they all use today to manage trials. And instead, we try to provide intuitive workflow tools that really allow trials to conduct sites that they love. Uh, so the resulting ecosystem around, of sites around the country using us day-to-day then really allows us to power a new type of trial that's quicker, that's less expensive, more likely to answer key questions. And so that's sort of our, our mission that's been guiding us for the last couple of years. And you've been really successful, right? I mean, you've gotten a huge amount of um, uh, uptake and traction uh, among some very high-profile places. Isn't that right? 
Yeah, so it's interesting. In the first couple of years of our existence, it's hard uh, to get healthcare institutions to sign on. You know, they have long sales cycles. They have a ton of complexity in terms of compliance requirements and IT requirements. Uh, so it took us years to get traction. But it's funny that sort of we, you turn a corner and suddenly everybody's heard about you and you have everything you need in place and then you really start to scale. And so we, we've had a fun time hmm. of making that. What What was that thing? What was that inflection point for you? What brought you to that moment where you went, oh, wait, we made it? Well, I don't know that we're yet at the, I made a point, right? You never really quite feel that way. Uh, that takes, uh, I have a feeling that's another five years. Uh, but, but what changed was the first couple saying, you know, you have what we need to use you. And so that's always key because once you get the first large enterprise clients across, then you can really start to scale and, and people will come, will follow them. Haven't a, a lot of companies tried to do this, really? I mean, to, to systematize and make simple the clinic side of the, the clinical trials world. I mean, people have been at it for the 20 years of my venture career trying to do that. So that's what's funny. I, don't, I think that's the perception, but I really don't think it's true. Um, there are a couple of reasons why I think there haven't been solutions to date that have succeeded. So, you know, sites don't have money. So there have been a ton of folks that have been going after trials, but they go after zeros and pharma. Right. Um, so they, they haven't really focused on the site itself as much. The second thing is that there's really no MVP. So a lot of people have gone to very specific things, right? They've either gone after finance or they've gone at, you know, paying sites or they've gone after, uh, you know, regulatory document management. But there's nobody that's really done an end-to-end solution that's comprehensive. And the last piece is they've really focused on data because it's sexy and NLP and AI. But I think that they focus less on this idea of, you know, what are the operations of a site and how to make understand them and really make them different. Um, so not many folks have really done it in the way we've gone about it. What makes your – what do you guys actually do and what makes it um, attractive to people? Who, do you, who are you selling to, first of all? Who's the person or people who have to sort of make the buy decision? Sure. So it's, it's the research teams at the sites, the management of those teams. So when you think about a research site today, right – uh, the the research group is generally not the one driving huge revenue. They're not the ones that, you know, are bringing tens of millions of dollars into these large institutions. And so they're often an issue string. Uh, but they're very inefficient because, again, they're using Excel files to maintain new patient lists. They're using, you know, they're going back to these PDFs with their protocols that are 400 pages long. And so if you show them a product that can drive efficiency for the coordinators, for the financial teams, for the regulatory teams that they actually want to use, uh, you know, we're often others, there are a couple of there's competitors on the market, but they're often, you know, sort of MS-DOS interfaces that just aren't, you know, they're not cloud-based. There are a lot of limitations. And so when you go in and you show an ROI model to, to the folks at the sites that says, we'll make folks more efficient, we'll bring you more money, we'll help you, uh, you know, get better trials, it, it's pretty compelling to them. And so that's who we sell to, uh, whether it's, you know, a three-doc practice in upstate New York doing neurology or it's a large academic center. So we just recently had a podcast with Noah Kraft, um, who's got a company, Science 37, whose hypothesis is different than yours, that that the sites should be broken down and they, we should be going to people's homes um, instead of clinics to make it easier for trials to get in, enrolled. What do you think of that? Yeah, so I don't think it's I don't think that that's a bad model. Um, I think it's specific to certain types of trials and certain endeavors. Uh, you know, I know, David, you wrote an article not too long ago around fixing trials versus reinventing them, which has some of the same themes. Uh, and to me, I think that, that really... 
there are there are other systems out there, right? I was part of Flatiron Health, which is all about sort of big data and how you how you drive new new types of discovery and, and new insights, which which I think is absolutely right, just like Science Thirty Seven. Right. But what I think is that there are lots of trials that still have to go through clinics, right? And a phase one oncology trial is not going to go in a patient's home. It's not. It's just not going to happen for a long time to come, I wouldn't think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so instead, we've ignored the clinics, and I think that's where the real opportunity is. How do you make clinics better at what they do? Connect them around the country, and then drive new trials across them. So we, we, it, they're not mutually exclusive, I don't think. Right. Um, and then for the idea of, you know, I can imagine here, you're saying here we're going to do it because, you know, when I was um, in, a, in a previous role, we were sort of, it was, it was selling a cloud-based product. And it was amazing how many centers really were so anxious. About, I mean, in healthcare, more than any other industry I can imagine, it seems, anxious about the cloud, anxious about data going up there, anxious about having to learn new approaches, anxious, just a lot of anxieties. How, how have you um, managed that as you've sold your product? So we're lucky. Um, we came late enough into the game that folks are, for the most part, relatively comfortable with it. We don't, we don't battle that. I mean, there's, there's a large system outside of D.C. that we're now, you know, they want us to do uh, encryption keys for our data infrastructure that's in the cloud cloud, which doesn't really exist in the cloud infrastructure because of the way that data is partitioned. And so you run into some of those legacy issues and we can build it. It's just going to take three months of, of two of our engineers to build. And, you know, so you have to go back and retrofit to those ideas. But for the most part, I mean, we just signed a system in South Carolina that's pushing millions of patients into our system so that as, you know, coordinators come across a patient they want in a trial, they can just you know, pick them out of that group and, and put them in without having to re-enter any of the data. So I think I think the tide has largely turned. There, there are always going to be exceptions, but but it's not nearly as hard as it used to be. It's an it's an interesting um, hypothesis that that you can be successful because you're late to the game instead of early to the game. We had a conversation about this in another podcast with Owen Tripp about whether it's good to be sort of like a first mover or a a late mover. So your your theory is it's better to be a late mover when it comes to technology adoption at least in healthcare. So I think it depends. Yeah. So I think it depends on what you're trying to do. But I do think if you're really trying to drive operations at large academic centers, if you're the first person in, you have to go through what they're used to or, or you know, large health systems, not necessarily academic centers. Mm-hmm. And so they want the server on site. They want things. And so we do have an advantage over some of our competitors that have been doing this for 15 years, because if it's a one-off installation at every site, you can't right. scale it in the cloud in the way that we can to actually then pivot it to, to help trials be better at what they do and sponsors and CROs be better at what they do. Interesting. So I do think in that respect, we, I mean, it was more a, a product of, of when we came, you know, when we got engaged. I don't think we intentionally relate to the game, but in retrospect, it probably does give us a big advantage of the timing in which we really kicked us off. And it's probably in the big picture. I'm sure there's probably another game that you're maybe a little bit early to. Um, so you, one of the things that really intrigued me is you told me that you wanted to be a platform, but you're explicitly, as I understand it, not a CRO. Can you help me understand this distinction? Yeah. So, you know, I feel like everybody, always, one of the one of the lines all the, all the clinical trials companies always say is that we want to disintermediate the CRO, right? We want to get rid of the CRO. And uh, I am personally not of the opinion that they're inherently evil, uh, but I do believe that they, they lack the efficiency they need. You know, they're still sending monitors to sites constantly. They're doing a lot of the things they've done traditionally for a lot of reasons we could talk about. But there's always going to be a role for a CRO in terms of oversight, compliance, fraud, monitoring. Uh, you know, there, there are things that we as a tech company are not trying to take on. 
Uh, but we do believe that a lot of sort of the, the blocking and tackling they do today in terms of oversight is sending, you know, I'm, I have a trial that's been open at my site for three or four years where I still practice, and I haven't had a patient on it in two years, and they still send a monitor every couple of months to sit down with me and talk about it. I mean, it, it just makes no sense, right? So there are efficiencies we can drive, but I don't think, I do think that there will always be that oversight role, and, and we as SignalPath are not looking to embrace that role. Do you really try to focus on the actual operational efficiency of the site to have a lot of just the different processes? How did you first become, or maybe the company, how did the company itself become aware of this being in need? And how did you get to what it sounds like you now believe is product market fit? Yeah, so I was on the faculty after I finished my oncology fellowship for a couple of years at Duke at a place called the Duke Clinical Research Institute. And the DCRI is the largest academic CRO in the world. Um, And it was founded by Rob Califf, who went on to the FDA as a commissioner and Bob Harrington was, was one of the early folks there who's now the chair of Medicine and just these brilliant folks that believed that there was a, a new solution. Um, and they were there when we were there on the faculty. And so a lot of it was the discussions that we would all have as a group and in Abernathy and just all these brilliant folks saying, we need to do something better for the sites to operationalize this and get it right. And so I co-founded this in 2014 with sort of the lead tech strategist, all of those individuals. Um, and that led to our, uh, you know, that's where the, the, the idea came from. And so it was luckily informed by a lot of brilliant people that really knew the space well. It, to to, to um, uh, Lisa's point, as you were trying to get traction and, and it, was, it was really being a slog, w- what gave you both the courage and the resources to keep going? Yeah, so, you know, we always could see what we were building. So the beauty of so many of these things in healthcare is there's a true mission. You truly believe, and, and I saw this at Flatiron, I saw it at Duke, I see it at SignalPath, where you really see the end game, and, and we've been we've been on this path, basically the same path throughout the through, since we started it. Uh, the belief that we could really change things, and you know, as sort of a concrete example of that, is this idea of the protocol and how we digitize the protocol, which is a lot of what makes us different and allows us to have the vision of what we're going to empower later. So our secret sauce is the fact that when you get a when you do a new trial as a site, you get a, a PDF that's probably three or four hundred pages long for an oncology trial that's full of metadata that's, you know, sort of easy to, to understand, inclusion criteria and exclusion criteria, you know, who can be on the trial, how do you qualify, stuff like that. But then there are these visit schedules and activities and windows between visits and washout periods and branch points and just all this complexity in the protocol. And right now, as a coordinator, you know, my coordinator down the hall, when a new patient comes in and I say, you know, I have this prostate cancer patient and do they qualify, they have to look it up. Or if they're coming in and today's visit six, they have to go back to the protocol and figure it all out and get all these documents. And so we've spent years now with this idea of how do you reflect a protocol digitally within a platform? Um, and we've been watching that build. And as we've watched it build, we've seen what we believe is something that nobody else has anything like. So it's actually... We submitted a patent for it. You know, we're, we're very proud of what we've built. And I've seen, I've been able to watch that grow and the power of that grow to then drive operations, drive finance, drive all the different things that are necessary to operationalize a trial. And as I've seen that, and as I've watched what we've been able to do with our early sites, I've, I've always been confident that in the end of the day, we had to be patient and we had to build this sort of comprehensive platform that, that sites would love it. And then once we get that infrastructure and sites that we're now getting, um, there really is, with, with the power of that digitization process, there really is the opportunity uh, to sort of reimagine things much more broadly. So you went from being an oncologist into business, but this is your first startup you've run, right? 
for startup I've run, but when I left Duke, I uh, spent uh, spent some time at McKesson at McKesson Specialty Health, which which runs U.S. oncology on the data side. Right. And then Amy Abernathy brought me to Flatiron for about a year and a half, uh, and I watched that build from you know when it was thirty people when she joined to five hundred people uh, more recently. What do you think is the the most um, powerful lesson you've learned as an entrepreneur that's different from what you learned as a doctor? Huh. That's an interesting question. Um, the complexities of leadership, I would say, and the importance of a given individual to an organization uh, that can really transform the organization. I don't think I ever, um, you know, as a doctor, you sort of walk in the room and, and you're the expert and you, know, you do your best to tell people what to do. And, you know, as an oncologist, I do my best to elicit you know, what the patient's goals are and how that aligns to treatment. But, you know, when I walk out and you tell the nurse this needs to happen, it just happens. Um, in an organization full of brilliant people, you know, Flatiron had all these folks from Google and McKinsey and Harvard and, and you name it, a lot of brilliant people. As a doc, you can't walk out of the room and tell them what to do. Uh, and the same thing at SignalPath, you know, we have a lot of mid-career people who have been very successful. Um, and so by far the biggest learning is how do you, how do you lead? Um, how do you get people to follow that? Interesting. And is that something you can learn or is that something that has to be innate? Well, you know, for a lot of different reasons, I, I think, I hope I've been learning it for a long time and very, in different roles, but I do think that there's a big piece that's innate. It's, uh, it's funny, we, I, a couple months back, we hired a new sort of sales lead, a, a commercial lead for our organization. Um, and I had never seen somebody, I mean, <laughs> our first trip, we were at, we were at a DCA in, 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 in uh, Washington, D.C., and we're getting ready to board a plane. We went to the sushi restaurant there, and like everybody in the restaurant came up to him. He hadn't been there in two months, and everybody was saying hi to him, and they knew his name, and they were all excited about him. And I quickly learned, you know, the importance of an individual, like their makeup to be a great salesperson and be able to engage with people. Um, and so I think I've seen time and time again that there are qualities that are just innate to, to good leadership. So um, let's... Uh... Uh, sort of roll back a little bit and, and sort of go, go into some of your beginnings. You grew up in Dallas, the son of a lawyer who at the age of 28 became CEO of a large company and then was recruited to run an even larger company, the huge home building company, Centax, which he went on to run for about 20 years. He then co-founded and helped lead a private equity fund, Highlander Partners, based in Dallas. It's subtle, but I think I can see where the business influence came from. Where did you get the interest in medicine? Um, I, I was probably, uh, you know, when I was younger, I, I just loved the idea of being able to help people and be a part of that experience. Um, I loved the doctors that I knew uh, around the community, some of whom I followed, you know, they were friends, friends, parents. Um, and I was always just sort of inspired by the mission. Uh, and so you, I, I can't tell you when, but I knew from a very young age that I wanted to be a doc. Uh, it was always sort of inherent. So, so then you went to college at uh, UPenn, uh, pursuing both biology and economics, which makes sense given your background. And then you took a year off doing um, several outdoor leadership programs, I think one in Alaska, one in Utah, which as far as I can tell, persuaded you to spend the next phase of your life indoors. <laughs> so, so, and, Alaska, that must have been, were you like out with the bears? Yeah, no, well, we did see some bears. I, uh, you know, I guess I had my midlife crisis early. Uh, I had graduated college. And I decided I was doing this like two month thing in Alaska for, with like, something called Knowles National Outdoor yeah. Leadership School, which is yeah. that sort of wilderness training. And halfway through, you come back after a month for like three days or something. And I called my med school and I said, I'm not going to come uh, because I'm having too much fun and I don't know that I'm ready to, to, to get on you know the treadmill that's hard to get off once you start. 
And then I moved to Utah, and I, I worked as a staff member at a wilderness therapy program for adjudicated youth, so back-end offender kids in the prison system in Utah, wow. where they would be sentenced to 100 days in the woods with us. Um, and, uh, and so we would, we would switch off weeks, leaving them in the woods. So, yeah, no, I took, a, I took a bit of a detour for a while there. Do you think that's where your first leadership training came from these programs? Oh, there is no doubt in my life that, uh, that my, my time in Utah was leadership training, you know. I don't know what I was thinking, honestly, or that even my parents even allowed me to do it. So we were, there were probably three or four staff members to about 10 kids, uh, prisoners, you know, uh, at a given time in the middle of nowhere in the last mapped mountain range in the lower 48. So we were like eight hours by car from the closest town that was like 400 people. Wow. Um, and so if something went awry, you were sort of out of luck. So you had to learn to get these kids. They weren't even allowed to eat hot food until they could make a fire with the shoestring that you gave them. So clearly there was some anger that was, you know, the, the goal was to sort of break them down and build them back up. And so, yeah, there, there's no question that that was a defining moment in me or year uh, in learning how to lead and, and, and how to get people to follow. And are you using that shoestring theory in your sales management methods now? Oh, yeah. No, every day. <laughs> every day. So after this experience, um, you went to med school at UT Southwestern, which of course is legendary as being one of the tough uh, sort of old school places with a real emphasis on autonomy. And we're asking for help was traditionally viewed as a sign of weakness. Is that, Am I in the ballpark? Yep. No, you're absolutely right. At Parkland, which is one of the sort of original uh, remaining, uh, you know, safety net hospitals in the country like Bellevue and, you know, a couple around the country, it, it was uh, definitely a uh, a very intern and resident-led organization has changed, but it was an intense experience for sure. So then at med school, um, you retained your interest in business where you were voted by your classmates as the one most likely to run a company and be a millionaire. Um, you told me you were always interested in the economics of practice and how tech might be applied. Can you tell me what you were thinking at the time? What year was this, by the way? Uh, I graduated med school in 2006. And uh, yeah, no, I, for whatever reason, I mean, it's it's my biology and economics undergrad and, and what I was doing in med school. I just always, I love the practice of medicine and I fought for in, in the various roles that I've been in to keep practicing and not give up my practice. Uh, but I love the idea that there are scalable solutions to sort of meet the needs. Um, and, and I've known from a very young age in medicine, having watched a lot that the economic incentives have a, a big impact on, on what people choose to do and, and how they go about it. And so I've always been excited about, you know, how can we play a role in building the systems that really drive change? Uh, and so, uh, you know, I, I, I started groups in med school around, you know, there were legal uh, electives that you could take and there were economics electives you could take. And I was helping to lead some of that. So I think it was always clear that I was excited about something broader. I don't think I knew what it was at the time. But but yeah, no, I've always had a bent on, on building these. But that's so interesting because it's, it's so aligned with what um, Bob Kocher told us back in his experience about how he was really interested in very similar stuff. So you went on to residency training at Duke where you found several key mentors, including Amy Abernethy, you mentioned earlier, who joined us on a previous episode and who Lisa and I are both huge fans of and uh, Kevin Schulman. What did you learn from them? Well, so Amy is, Amy is, is you know, uh, extraordinarily unique. She has the ability to see strategy of what's happening in the world, you know, and what's going to change in the next five to ten years in a way that very few people that I met have. And then she has the ability to be a part of the conversations to change, to, to, to move organizations and move fields in that direction. And she has the ability to then build the organizations, uh, like, I, like I've seen it both through Conflatiron, to, to meet those needs. And so I, following her was one of the smartest things I think I've done. You know, if she tells me to go somewhere, I'll gladly go, <laughs> uh, because it's been fun to understand the strategy, be able to build those. And, and you can see it in Signal Path, hopefully, of, you know, how we went after the clinics and how we're building the longer-term vision of how to run trials. Um, and Kevin was... 
Kevin was my other mentor when I was at Duke and, and somebody that he just made a move to Stanford. So, so he started there in June. And uh, he under, he's sort of an iconoclast. He likes to rattle everybody's cages and, and, you know, push for change and push for new ideas. But he understands sort of the economic implications of a lot of the choices that are made in, in really interesting ways and the way different economic, behavioral economics theories play a role. And so, you know, that's been really important to me, understanding the market, understanding healthcare, and, and how you can drive change. And so, you know, I absolutely believe that the mentors that I've had have been absolutely critical to my success, uh, both in teaching me and as well as advocating. So it's, it's been phenomenal. So then you continued your training at Duke, both as an oncology fellow and as a business student, a business school student. Um, and you mentioned uh, to me that you found the MBA really valuable for two reasons. Uh, one um, was uh, about what you learned, and you sort of were getting at this before, about interacting with teams of equals, and two, what you learned about driving change. Can you amplify on these points and how you thought they were relevant or not to help Absolutely. So I don't think, and maybe this is different for other folks. I mean, you made the joke at the beginning that it's six months of, of education in a two-year period. Uh, and it's fairly true. There, I, I can't say when I look back that I learned a ton of hard skills. You know, I don't, I don't think I re- remember my finance and accounting classes particularly. Uh, but it was as a physician who is in a, uh, you know, who's in deep in the weeds of, of learning the science and, and you don't have the same leadership experience. And so I do think getting dropped in teams of very intelligent people, similar to what I was talking about in Utah, though very different, you know, is how do you lead among equals and how do you drive uh, change and how do you hear and make sure everybody's heard around the table and those are things you just don't really learn in medicine. Uh, I don't. It's sad that I guess you know I needed an MBA to accelerate that, but it's fairly true. Um, and then I think at the same time you can see a lot of where the world is going from a very different lens. You get to see other industries, you meet people with very different experiences. That again is difficult in medicine, and so I think that. Um, as a doctor, it had a lot of utility uh, beyond beyond the coursework, which I guess is sort of the common theme in, in, in MBAs. Do you think more people, and I mean, sort of a different, almost tangential question, but the theme, at least in my morning so far, has sort of been folks who've with some kind of leadership MBA experience, just really reflecting on the value of that in healthcare. Um, do you think that doctors would be able to contribute more towards uh, potential solutions if they had more of this um, type of training? Absolutely, although it, I think it takes the kind of person that's interested in it. Uh, you know, I don't think necessarily mm-hmm. pushing all the leading academic medical schools <clears throat> to, to have everybody get an MBA is, is, is the answer, but I do think... Or, or are, are there components of the education, like some of the absolutely. leadership training? Yeah, Absolutely. No, I think it would make a huge difference. I think if people understand economic incentives better and leadership better, that it, it'll it'll advance the field. Although, you know, even if you taught a whole bunch of... Do they of- have to leave medicine to use those skills? Because it just seems to me that medicine is is not that interested most of the time in those skill sets. Yeah, and it's not like it would change their clinic, right? It wouldn't change their the way they interact with nurses or patients necessarily day to day. But it is those that are moving up in sort of leadership roles uh, that I do think would have a huge impact, whether in healthcare or, or outside. How have you personally balanced it, or, or what do you think of the balance? Because I, it seems to me that on the one hand, doctors are incredibly mission-driven, that it isn't just sort of like selling widgets. They, there really is something, I mean, you recognize this by the fact that you maintain your clinic. There is something that really is exceptional and distinct about the relationship that as a physician you have with your patients. At the same time, there's unbelievable data about how responsive doctors are like many others to economic incentives. And so there really is this mission-driven part, this mission-driven thinking, which is, as you know, core to being a doctor. But then there really is still this, you know, this sort of 
unspoken truth that doctors are, you know, they choose their fellowships, they choose their, there's a huge amount of decision making, especially once people are out in the real world, that is absolutely driven by economics. How, how, do, you, how do you reconcile those two different aspects of medicine? Yeah, so, uh, no, I think, I think I, I don't know that they're in conflict, uh, or when they do, I should say, when they are in conflict, doctors choose the mission over the economics, uh, and, and that I do believe. I think that the vast majority, there are always exceptions, but the vast majority of docs have the right, come to medicine because they want to change the world, and especially uh, of recent when the economics have changed. You know, a lot of the older generation of docs are unhappy about what insurance companies are doing, and, you know, the, the, the economics aren't what they were, and so I think especially younger generations are coming into it wanting to help patients, wanting to make things better. You're absolutely right that there are a lot of perverse economic incentives in the practice of medicine, and how you choose chemotherapy agents is a great example, right? But I think that when you have three equivalent drugs, um, and and they're truly equivalent, there's nothing to say a different, it's our obligation through the clinical trials infrastructure, through the data infrastructure to show which is better. And I think that we need to overcome the economic incentives that are always not always perfectly aligned. Uh, I think it's really about developing the data to show it. And then I think that people will choose the right thing, because I do think that the mission trumps everything else in medicine. Do you think that it's better for the system for all doctors to be employees? I mean, now something like 60% are, but is that an improvement in the system? No, I don't. I, you know, I think that control over the doc, I don't think it changes. So there are a couple different pieces in that. So when you think of like risk models, right, when you think of capitated care or the way in oncology, it's something called the oncology care model, which is this idea, if you save money, you'll get that money back. And so in theory, there should be a huge incentive to decrease wasteful care. Uh, the reality is that not a lot of people are meeting those metrics because right. we don't. There's not the information to meet them, right? It's not that uh, if you employ the doc, they're going to stop making bad choices that help them make more money. It's that you really have to tell them, no, you know, you need. This is why this drug is better. And so I, I think that actually makes it harder because there's less motivation to work hard. There's less motivation to care when you're an employee. Uh, and I think that instead of changing employment structures, we need to change the information and the, and the structure of what we do. So um, after you, you sort of, you know, you, you went through the, the MBA, the fellowship, um, as we were sort of starting to get to earlier, you, um, you moved back to Texas. And as you mentioned, you first took a job at McKesson and then went to Flatiron. H- how are those two experiences different, you know, McKesson and Flatiron? What was your impression at the time about how those two, the contrasting way those two organizations thought about organizing data? You know, it's a, I, I feel st- Flatiron was was a great place to be in that it was young folks, and they they didn't have the same constraints uh, in terms of the money they had to use to change things and the mission and the opportunity and the drive. You know, those kind of organizations, and I've seen this in academics, I've seen it in large, you know, Fortune 15 corporations, and now I've seen it in startups. And, and the ones that are driving change in data technology are going to continue to be those small startups with a whole bunch of people that are scrappy and trying to change the world. I think it's not necessarily the right thing to expect that of McKesson, right? They're a drug distribution company. They are really about, um, you know, driving that infrastructure. And from a clinical perspective, from a clinical insight perspective, from pathways, from structure, you know, they're, they're the best in the world. They're, they're amazing in terms of what they've driven there. And so uh, they, they weren't looking to invest in technology to the same degree. You know, they, they didn't want to be on the bleeding edge of where data is going. I don't blame them. You know, it's more risk than reward. Um, and so I, I do think that if you, want to, if you want to do these things, it's going to continue to be the flat irons and signal paths and others of the world that do it. 
Um, but, you know, I still, I'm still a doc within McKesson, and I, I think that as a practice management organization, they're fantastic. So now you're an entrepreneur in Texas. How is that different, do you think, from being an entrepreneur on one of the coasts? Is there a different experience? Um, I think that there's a different perception, for sure. Uh, I don't think that there's a huge difference because so much of what we do is virtual. And we've been able to hire, both here and in North Carolina, where, where a lot of the team is, um, we've been able to hire extraordinarily talented individuals. You know, we've been able to build within AWS, you know, just as easily as folks do elsewhere. Um, so I'm, and it's sort of starting to be seen like Apple's going to have headquarters, it sounds like, in Raleigh in, not, in the not-too-distant future. Um, so so I, I don't think that it's given us except from a perception perspective, I don't think it's given us any kind of a, you know, a disadvantage. I think it's been a great place to be and, and we've been able to build a great company. Yeah, I mean, Amy was such a fan of uh, North Carolina in particular. I mean, she's commuted there um, when, when working in New York. And um, so you mentioned to me that after your time in North Carolina, um, as we're sort of getting ready to wrap up here, um, both you and your wife were really keen to move back to Texas, which uh, sounds like uh, both, both of y'all <laughs> viewed as a, an ideal place to live, as I'm sure Soup with Mustache would agree. Come back to Texas. It's just not the same since you went away before you lose your accent and forget all about the Lone Star State. Troy Aikman wants you back. Willie Nelson wants you back. NASA wants you back. And the Bush twins. My question did they get it right? With Troy Aikman, Pantera, Bluebell, what do you like most about Texas? What's your perspective as a native Texan? You know, I, I'm conflicted. My wife is the ultimate Texan, and, you know, I can work anywhere in the world. So much like Amy, I was commuting to New York when I was at Flatiron, and I, I had a two-month-old when I started there. So uh, my wife is so dedicated to Texas that she, you know, we were going to live in a five-block radius around her family, and we're never going to leave again, and I can travel as much as I need to travel. So there's something, I think, innate in Texans about the open sky. She hated the trees in North Carolina, which, you know, I've never met anybody that thought that was negative. Um, <laughs> but she, uh, she likes the open sky and, and the type of people and the, the huge, you know, absurdity of, 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 of Cowboy Stadium. You know, we had, we had uh, season tickets to the Cowboys even before we moved back. Wow. Um, so wow. There, yeah, I think there's something innate about being a Texan. My brother Adam is a huge Cowboy fan. He always was <laughs> growing up with Sawback and everyone. So um, that's, uh, that's, and I think he's going to be jealous when he listens to this. That's so funny. Well, that's fantastic. Well, thanks for taking so much time with us this morning and for uh, telling us about what sounds like a fantastic journey and um, so much more exciting stuff to come. So we really appreciate it. It's great to talk to you. Yeah, thank you both. It was, it was fantastic. All right, well, that was pretty interesting. Yeah, it's always, um, you know, I... I I don't agree that there haven't been a lot of companies that have tried that model. I think there are and have been many. None have succeeded. So it's interesting that somebody finally broke through. I'm really curious about this thesis about being late to market is a, is a better opportunity. Well, you know, even in pharma, the thing they would always debate about because one of the, um, you know, I remember, I think it was a monitor consultants of all people, they um, they, they sort of promoted this idea of a fast follower. So like mm-hmm. someone has to do all the market development work and then you sort of, um, it's people who kind of Ride come their in right wake. behind. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Who, um, what's the term in auto racing? You know, you go right behind. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, um, Please remember to rate us on iTunes and leave a comment. Help others discover the show. You can follow David's writing at Forbes. And you can follow Lisa Soonan at VentureValkyrie.com. We're especially grateful to our new sponsor, RockPoint. RockPoint, innovators in medical education and patient engagement. 
To learn more, go to www.rockpointe.com. Remember the last E for excellence. Tectonics is produced by Connected Social Media and recorded in Tectonics Studio B in Mill Valley, California. Take care, y'all. All y'all. All y'all.